podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. What's up, party people? Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I am Chris. And I'm refusing to say that my name is John with that yeah? party people. You don't want to be part of the party people? Party people. This episode has nothing to do with partying. It's as far as you get from that. Bipartisanship. Ooh, I like it. There you go. Let's talk about some other stuff first. Fantasy football season is upon us. I actually want to get a fantasy football guest. I think we could do that like stat. Well, I mean, who's a fantasy football guest? Like Tim from the office pool that does really well every year? All right. Or if you have won your fantasy Brandon pool Funston. five years in a row, hit us up. You're going to get a spot on the, on the podcast. Also, some things to do. We have numerous ways you need to incorporate yourself into our web of smartness. I'm going to go ahead and say the two most prominent are follow us on Facebook and sign up for our newsletter. Actually, just just sign up for our newsletter. Go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, upper right-hand corner. We're going to need you to double opt-in. So you just opt-in. It's going to send you a uh, an email. Roach is laughing because we argued if it should be double opt-in or not. Is that why you're laughing? No, because you said, I'm going to need you to double opt-in. <laughs> uh, I'm going to need you to click the verification email. Shut up, Roach. So, um, yeah, do that because there's a lot of information we want to pass along. It's not going to be spam. It's I promise we're going to add interesting stuff in there. It's not just going to be an email you get like, hey follow us. It's not like, oh, yeah. it'll be really cool. We just want to interact a little bit more. We're dedicating a lot more time. John and I filled an entire whiteboard yesterday, brainstorming ideas. We are going to get a 500% increase in downloads in 2013. That's our goal. Five times. Why are you telling them this? I don't know. I feel like they want to know. Oh. And then follow us on Facebook because you can do cool stuff like learn about when we're interviewing guests and watch us on Ustream. Yeah, we tried doing that today. This was kind of a last minute addition, if you will. We sent out a message on Facebook and Twitter saying that we were going to be interviewing our guest at 545. Check us out on Ustream. And we had a couple people stop in and, and pop out. I have a feeling that each time that they popped out, it was because they were watching video ads. So again, as I mentioned, get ad block for Chrome or Firefox and you can watch us. But you know, head over to Ustream, go to our channel over there. You can see it on Facebook everywhere that we've linked it. It's just something cool that we're going to be doing. We're going to do live interviews now. And if people have questions, they can type them in the chat room and ask those questions. Yeah. I mean, you might not ever have access to these people again. So if you like their books or what they're about, we're literally going to take your questions and ask them a few of them. It's going to be pretty cool. And then we're going to air these on YouTube and whatnot. So it's just another way to get this out there. So diving into this week's episode is incredible. We, we interviewed Jonathan Haidt. It's pretty crazy. We found him initially, you know, John and I love our happiness and our psychology. And he is a psychologist. He wrote a book, The Happiness Hypothesis. But he also wrote a book, which we ended up spending most of our time talking about, called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And it's awesome. It's so prevalent right now. We talk about bipartisanship and how uh, your brain and morality actually plays a role into, into what side of the political spectrum you're on, if you will. So do you want to tell them a little bit more about John or you want to dive in there? 
So Jonathan's a professor at New York University Stern School of Business. He's taught psychology for a long time, over 15 years, started at UVA. UVA, moved on from there, got his PhD from University of Pennsylvania. He's been all over the place. I saw him on the Colbert Report. That was actually really cool. He talked about his book on there. He seems like an overall smart guy. You listen to him talk on the podcast, and I mean, he just kind of, he blows your mind around every corner. Oh man, he's been on TED. He's been interviewed by a ton of people. He writes numerous articles. He's also been featured in New York Times Magazine. He was in the Wall Street Journal. His book, The Righteous Mind, is number six on the, or it was number six on the New York Times bestseller list the first week it came out his TED Talks. Um, So he's been a lot of different places. He's a really good dude and really smart guy. And so we were lucky to have him today and talk about what he focuses on morality and, and psychology and politics, how it plays a role. So before you go to the polls, and if you're sick of all the commercials, Romney versus Obama, Maybe tune in. We'll, we'll teach you a little bit today about how psychology plays a role in who you're voting for and some other cool stuff. First, I kind of wanted to ask you, you cover numerous aspects of psychology with a, a concentration on morality. Could you kind of go into how you honed in on mm-hmm. morality in general and what kind of drove you to, to the point you're at today? Uh, yes. So I decided to go to graduate school in psychology, uh, in part from process of elimination. I didn't know what the hell to do with my life. <laughs> and in part because I had studied uh, philosophy, some psychology and computer science in college. And so I thought I'd go to to graduate school in artificial intelligence and cognitive psychology. And once I got to Penn, to the University of Pennsylvania, to start the graduate program there in cognitive psychology, I didn't really connect with my initial advisor. And I had a great talk with a professor named John Barron, who studied thinking and reasoning. And he had a side project on moral thinking and reasoning. And I thought that sounded interesting. So just on a whim, I started working on that. And that led me to looking at how people make moral judgments. And at the time, in 1988, uh, everybody was looking at moral reasoning, but that just felt wrong to me. I I, I had the feeling that really the emotions were much more important. And uh, as I started studying cultural psychology as well, looking at morality across cultures, I started seeing that emotions like disgust were really important in our moral lives. And that got me started on studying the the moral emotions and some non-Western and uh, really non-liberal moralities. And is that kind of how you came up with the the moral foundations theory? I know that's a a large point in your career or that's kind of one of the things that's defined, at least from what I've read and what I've found, you know, what you believe in. Yes, I was very fortunate to work with two brilliant cultural anthropologists. Uh, Alan Fisk, one of my advisors at Penn, had a theory about four models of social relationships, communal sharing, authority ranking, equality matching, market pricing. And then uh, I did a postdoc with Richard Schwader at the University of Chicago, who talked about these three ethics that you find around the world, the ethics of community, autonomy, and divinity. And I loved both of these theories, but I couldn't quite get them to match up, the you know, Fisk's four and Schwader's three. So I, I, I decided to step back, look, at, look, at, uh, look for the taste buds, as it were, the sort of the low-level receptors of our moral sense, and that's how I came up with moral foundations theory, which really draws heavily on both Fisk and Schwader. Uh, and that's the idea that there are five almost like taste receptors of the moral mind. Uh, our minds are evolved and prepared to detect 
issues of care and compassion, issues of fairness and cheating, issues of loyalty and betrayal, issues of authority and subversion, issues of sanctity and degradation, and we've recently added a sixth, issues of liberty and oppression. You know, it's funny because it, I like how in, in in these six foundations, you end up tying them to, and I know, you know, that's where your most recent book, uh, The Righteous Mind, comes from. You tie it to politics, which is so funny because it's such a natural evolution. Like if I hear about morality and the things you were covering, you just immediately look at the bipartisanship nature of government today and it's like, boom, it's just a, it's just a, a segue. Did you always see it getting into the political sphere? No, not at all. It was really quite a fluke. I mean, I, I did this work. I was trying to understand why, why does morality vary across countries? And I did my dissertation in Brazil. I did some field work in India. And, and that was my question was, you know, how does morality vary across nations and cultures and eras? And it was only after the 2004 election in which Kerry blew it, really could have beaten Bush, but, uh, but just didn't connect uh, with American voters and with American values. It was after that election that I decided to start applying this cultural framework to studying politics as culture. In other words, liberals and conservatives in America were about as different or as different morally uh, as, say, uh, uh, Indians and, uh, and Americans. Uh, and it just, it just worked really well. I was invited by the Charlottesville Democratic Party to give a talk to their membership to try to explain what on earth just happened. You know, in 2000, Democrats thought, all right, Bush stole the election. But in 2004, looks like Bush actually won. And so uh, I never intended to study politics, but the cultural framework just worked really well for politics. I found one thing you wrote in an article, and it said, morality binds people together into teams that seek victory, not truth. And it closes hearts and minds. And I think that no better statement could define politics in general. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because I don't know if I would have used the word morality, but after you define it like that, I mean, People believe if, if they believe something is moral, then they are going to have an extremely strong stance on it, so much so that they won't hear the other side. So I, I guess I wanted to talk to you about your definition of morality and how it segregates people into their own team. That's right. So when, when normal people talk about morality, they, they mean what's really, truly right. And when philosophers talk about morality, they mean what's really, truly right. But I'm a social scientist, I'm a social psychologist, and when I talk about morality, I mean this thing that we all do. Wherever you go on earth, people are always judging each other. They're always claiming that some people were right and wrong. And that's what I'm studying. So, you know, I'm happy to talk about Nazi morality. I don't mean that Nazis are right. I mean that, boy, the Nazis sure thought that they were pursuing moral virtues and they were moralistic and they thought that they were justified. So as a scientist, I want to understand that. I want to understand all of these crazy, well, I shouldn't say crazy, all of these extremist uh, and fundamentalist movements. So whenever you see people working together with others who are not their kin, who are not their siblings, when you see people working together, taking risks, maybe uh, giving their time and their money, well, odds are there's some sort of moral motivation. They think they're doing something good or noble. And that's what politics is. Politics is not primarily the pursuit of self-interest. Uh, I mean, you know, at the congressional level, I suppose it is. But, you know, people care so much about the presidential election. That's not really about self-interest. It's about our moral visions and, and trying to fight for our teams so that it wins and beats the other team. So knowing all of this, 
how do you make your political decisions? I mean, if is it all about how you're raised? That's going to shape your moral structure, if you will. I, it's just tough because this is eye-opening. I realize that when I argue with somebody about politics, I feel like I'm right. John and I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, well, sh- heck, I'm only right in my own mind. And so, you know, I'm interested from somebody like you who've done, you've done all the research How do you make that decision and feel like your side of the story is right? Well, it has been a little bit paralyzing in that when I hear about, uh, uh, when I look at any issue now, I just habitually look on both sides. And in a sense, I I always did that. And it drives my wife crazy. You know, she'll tell me about some bad thing someone else did to her. And I, you know, I immediately think, well, actually, I can see why he did that. And uh, advice to listeners, never do that, especially if you're a guy talking to a woman. But anyway, um, in a, in a particular debate that you have with another individual, it's quite possible that you're right and they're wrong. Uh, you seem like a very smart guy. I'm sure you're right most of the time. But when you look at disagreements that have gone on for decades or centuries between movements, the strong odds are, at least the conclusion I've come to is, that each side is really right about the things it most cares about. It, it sees certain threats, but it doesn't really understand what the other side is saying. So if we look at, if we look, you know, the central issue now is that really in our country is really the size of government and taxes and entitlements and all of that. And, you know, the conservatives are really right about the entitlement disaster. I mean, they've been saying this since the 60s, that this stuff is unaffordable, that it's a giant Ponzi game. And you know what? They were right. Medicare is completely un- unaffordable. We've got to change it fundamentally. So, you know, and I'm coming at this from the point of view of somebody who's much more favorable to the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, the Democrats say, well, the Republicans uh, are really just out to cut taxes on the rich and they don't really care. They don't care about all the people are going to fall through the cracks and all the people who have, you know, uh, haven't saved or have various uh, disabilities. And they're right. If you don't have one party looking out for for the victims, for the weak, for, for children and animals and immigrants, then those groups will have no voice and they will get trampled on. So both sides really are right about their core issues. And it's kind of as paralyzing for me in that um, it makes it hard for me to just jump on a bandwagon and wave a flag and uh, say, <laughs> we're right. I used to do that during my 20s and 30s, but I don't do it anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess that makes you a little more educated. John, did you have something? Yeah, I had something real quick around all the different news programs that are out there now. Where, you know, you have your right-wing TV and you have your left-wing TV, and they seem to just cater to those people that already believe in the same thoughts that they do. So, you know, it's almost like they're building up an army or something for, for a bigger argument at some point. Do you see us as a society getting away from that, or are we going to get worse and worse before this nation really is split, like, directly in half? Um, you can look both ways on that. Uh, the big picture is that violence is going down, our democracy is secure, whichever side wins the election, the other side is not going to start hunkering down with guns. I mean, there's some rhetoric on the right about it, but uh, we do have a pretty secure democracy and violence levels are, are plummeting. So the big picture is actually pretty good. On the other hand, the, the, the mid-20th century was a really unusual period of bipartisanship, which will probably not be repeated during our lifetimes. Um, if you look back in the uh, graphs of political polarization show that things were really bad in the 19th century, leading up to the Civil War, during the Civil War, of course, and then for decades after the Civil War, America was really split north and south. It was obviously a, a violent conflict. And then 
in the 1920s and 30s, well, basically after World War I, well, nothing brings a country together like fighting a war that everybody's unified on. So you get World War I, you get the Great Depression, you get World War II. Everybody who lived through that had these experiences that helped them trust each other, work together, have a sense that we are Americans. And so the, all those people who then basically came to power and ran the com- our corporations, our government in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they all remembered World War II. And uh, an additional factor is they all watched the same three television networks, which had never happened before. So what I'm saying is partisanship and nastiness were very high early in the Republic. Then they were very low in the mid to late 20th century. And as the greatest generation retired and the baby boomers took over in the 1990s, you know, Clinton and Gingrich, that generation is not as equipped to cooperate, to come together. And uh, so in a sense, we're just returning to our 19th century baseline from a temporarily uh, excellent period. Hmm. Now, and, and you know, I, I read uh, an article that you wrote, How to Get the Rich to Share the Marbles, and it kind of touches on that, what you just discussed. And I found it fascinating, specifically because... Are you saying our baseline then is to to be split and to not come together as one? Or can we get back to that happy medium of we're all in it together? Um, Because I'd like to think we are more cognizant of it today than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Is that just a pipe dream? Um, Is it a pipe dream? (laughs) We can't predict the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen. In the next few years, I think there's no reason for hope whatsoever. But, you know, (laughs) 5, 10, 15 years from now, uh, all kinds of things could happen. So the key key psychological idea that I'd offer listeners is is what's called multi-level selection. That is, we are very good at cooperating at any given level to fight the conflict at that level. Uh, and evolution might even have worked that way, you know, uh, possibly even having uh, more cohesive groups beating out less cohesive groups, rewarded genes that helped us be cohesive and groupish and tribal. I think that's where our tribal nature comes from. So people can come together to fight another country or they can come together uh, with a political party to fight the other political party. Times of modern peace and prosperity remove the need for Americans to come together to fight other countries. That's a good thing. We now face the challenge of global warming and some other global threats. Unfortunately, these are not the sort of things that really pull us all together. It's not like a foreign attack that's going to activate this ancient tribal circuit of rally around the flag. In fact, global warming, unfortunately, splits us because it is an issue that the left cares about and not the right. So the right was kind of coming along for a while, but as it got more politicized and as there was climate gate and one or two little scandals, that gave the right permission to dismiss it and say, ah, this is just a leftist uh, conspiracy. So we are kind of stuck. It's going to be hard to get us all together as a nation until we face some major, major threat. Yeah, and you know, it's scary because John and I were in college when when 9-11 occurred, and I remember at that point and for a little while afterwards, it felt like there was this real camaraderie. You know, everybody was coming together, and and I I think more quickly than, and this is just off of my own opinion, I I didn't live through it, but more quickly than the, the large wars in the past, we got over that fast, and it, it went right back to, hey, let's all invest in the new tech stock and make as much money at anyone's expense. Is, is, is that a fair assessment? I think, that, I think that's absolutely correct. And I blame George Bush for that. I think both Bush and Obama have failed to press the cooperation button, the national cooperation button. 
uh, Bush failed spectacularly after 9-11. You're right. We all felt you know, this was a new world. This was like the Pearl Harbor attack. And Bush made two mistakes. One was to say, go shopping. You know, the best thing you can do is just keep up the economy. He focused on economic issues. And the other is that he hijacked the 9-11 attacks for his own neocon agenda and the war on Iraq. We know that from insider accounts that the next day on 9-12, he was saying, find a way to pin this on Saddam Hussein. Uh, wow. So Bush, I think, was quite divisive. He really ruined an opportunity to uh, to heal this nation and help us work together. Obama's failure, I think, was not as spectacular. But after the fiscal collapse, after the disaster of 2008, uh, and after it was clear, you know, we're in big trouble. We're not prepared for for this. I think the proper response should have been, we're all in this together. We're, we've all got to give. And that means we're going to have to, uh, well, in the short run, I, I do agree with him and with Paul Krugman that stimulus was the right, uh, the right move. But what he did was he said, okay, we're going to do a huge, huge stimulus, which is basically what liberals like to do is government spending. And we're going to do a little bit of tax cuts, which Republicans like to do. And we're going to run up the deficit, which both sides have done for a long time. What Obama didn't do is say, you know what, this is the time for us to really get our house in order in the long run. Uh, and that after this stimulus, you know what, we're going to have to cut entitlement spending and we're going to have to raise taxes. He should have done that and said, you know, everyone's going to have to give, including the middle class. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to protect you, middle class. Don't worry. Your taxes aren't going to go up. Your Medicare isn't going to be affected. Nobody has to sacrifice or suffer except for the rich. Now, I fully agree that the rich have to pay more taxes. The Bush tax cuts were terrible. There was no justification for them. Uh, but Obama used what was a national catastrophe, a national crisis, and he, he failed to push the we're all in this together button, common sacrifice button. I mean, that is truly enlightening stuff. And do you think that that's changed I guess in your mind, do you think that's changed the way that Obama should have gone about getting reelected? Because, you know, almost at this point, he can't go forward and say, okay, we didn't do this in the previous four years. Now we have to move forward. Everybody's going to have to give, including the middle, yeah. the middle class. Well, that's, you know, see, that's the problem with, with our political calendar is that you have a new president has a year, year and a half, you know, about a year to really do something big. And then he faces midterm elections. And in Obama's case, he lost them in a big way, right. uh, which meant that as with Bill Clinton's first term, he then had to just hunker down, couldn't do anything big. And that's where we are. Um, the uh, year before an election is not the time to say, you know what, everyone's got to give. I mean, the nature of democracy is that people always want more entitlements for themselves and lower taxes for themselves. You can't have both. Sure. Uh, and this, the seniors, unfortunately, uh, the senior citizens are so well organized and the young people are so poorly organized. Many of your listeners may have seen the coverage of what's changed in the budget over the last de couple decades. Basically, spending on youth and uh, education is way down. Spending on the elderly is way up. And that's the way we're going. It's a terrible, terrible way to run a country. I hope Obama will do something about it if he wins re-election. But he can't talk about that now because the elderly will vote him out of office. Yeah, and that just blows my mind because when you look at everything, you can almost pin everything on education. I mean, we trail so many countries in different areas of education. There's just this huge lack of education in this country, and nobody really – I don't want to say nobody, but it's not really talked about that often. And if I was 18, 19, 20 years old, I'd be going out right now and voting to make sure that myself and other people are going to be educated moving forward – but there's millions of young kids out there of the legal age to vote that aren't choosing to vote this go around. And that's, mm -hmm. to me, that's scary. 
That's right. Well, one of the difficulties with with education policy is that it's so politicized and polarized. Uh, The culture war tends to play out in a couple of areas primarily, especially the family, child-rearing, popular culture, and education. Those are some of the most contested areas. And I think with education, it's a nice example of a place where both sides really have part of the story, but not the other. The left tends to pride itself on being the party of education, and certainly most teachers, university professors are, are Democrats and liberals. But you know, my perspective as a centrist uh, is that if the left was really serious about education, they would throw the teachers' union overboard. I mean, they would focus on what is it going to take to have efficient and effective schools? And you can't just say, we're going to tenure teachers a year after they're hired and keep them on forever and ever so that when we have to cut budgets, we cut the young teachers. I mean, it's just craziness. The teachers union is not about good education. The teachers union is about protecting teachers. That's all. And because the Democrats cozy up to them, the Republicans are always then trying to get around teachers unions by proposing charter schools, which I think have some merits, although they haven't panned out as uh, as well as the conservatives think they are, were going to. So we're kind of paralyzed because you know we we can't just appoint a panel of experts to figure out what works. Unfortunately, panels of experts are going to tend to be either liberal or conservative, and they're going to be polarized too. And I really do. I love your take on all this, especially coming from the background you have. It's not I'm trying to be elected office or anything. It's a scientific background, utilizing things you've learned. And and I do, I love the take on it all. And I want to remind our listeners, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, goes into this in much more depth. And, and I know we got to let you go in a minute, but I did want to touch on the happiness hypothesis. As I mentioned, it's something we, we talk about a lot on the podcast. And I love what you did with this book with the 10 key issues that you, you just pinpointed them. Because John and I started the podcast because we wanted kind of Cliff's notes of our favorite books, you know, of our favorite topics. And you, you did it in this book. Could you quickly just tell us kind of how you came to that aha moment where you were like, man, I'm teaching these things over and over again. And they have mm-hmm. these underlying things that are all the same. It's just a, it's a great right. uh, structure. That's right. So the, the way the book came about was that when I got to the University of Virginia, my first job when I was 31 years old, um, my first professor job, and I was assigned to teach Psych 101. And I was trying to explain to, you know, all of human nature in, in 24 lectures. And I found myself quoting Shakespeare and Buddha and Jesus and Thomas Jefferson and Lao Tzu and everybody. And for a while, uh, when I was an assistant professor, it looked like I might not get tenure. And uh, if I didn't get tenure, I'd, I'd be kicked out of UVA. And uh, I thought, well, if I do that, uh, maybe I'll try to write a book and a book and about these, uh, you know, about all these quotations and all these psychological principles. And I just started collecting these quotations, these psychological quotations from the ancients, and, and putting them together into categories to try to figure out what what were the great insights that the ancients had. The ancients were just miserable at chemistry and biology. They had no clue about chemistry and biology and physics, but they were really good psychologists. They they didn't need any special equipment. They they looked within, they observed themselves, and they came up with a lot of great insights about how to deal with people, how to manage your mind, how to find happiness. So it turns out I did get tenure at UVA, but I decided to write the book anyway. And originally the title was going to just be 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology. And that's really what the book is. Uh, Then I got a contract and I started writing the book and I ran out of time. So I changed the title to 10 Great Truths. I didn't have time to write the last two up. 
Uh, and then the, the publishers made up the title The Happiness Hypothesis. Uh, many people don't know that for trade books, for popular books, the author doesn't get to pick the title. So they made up that title, The Happiness Hypothesis. Uh, the book isn't entirely about happiness. Only about three or four chapters are directly about happiness. But by the time I finished the book, now that I knew what the new title was, I realized, well, actually, there is a happiness hypothesis. I hadn't realized it when I started the book. And the conclusion uh, that I came to in the book is that happiness doesn't come from getting what you want. And of course, most of us know that. It doesn't even come from within, which is you know, what most, so many other traditions tell us, the Stoics and, and uh, many others. Rather, happiness comes from between. Happiness comes from getting the right relationship between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. So that's the story that I tell in The Happiness Hypothesis. And in many ways, it's the prequel to The Righteous Mind. It, it sets up a lot of the themes that I then uh, developed in much more detail in The Righteous Mind about morality and groupishness. You know, I was going to try and steal one last question. I was going to say, what, what's the number one message you want to pass along from The Happiness Hypothesis? And then you did it on your own. Because, I mean, it's like you summed up all of it in a nutshell so nicely for us. I, I wish well, more people could do I've done it a few that. times before. Yeah. So I know we got to let you go. I do want to say again, thanks so much for being on the show. Your books are incredible. I do recommend both of them in that order that you mentioned because it does open up your mind a little bit into the way that we think about things and the way we should make decisions. So I appreciate that. And I'm glad you would come talk to us about it. Well, thank you, Chris. And thank you, John. It's a pleasure talking with you both. Are there any websites or any areas that you want to send our listeners to? Anything that you want to plug? Oh, sure. You might just mention uh, mention both uh, happinesshypothesis.com and righteousmind.com. There are a lot of videos, especially at righteousmind.com. There are a lot of videos and other materials that people might find useful. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll definitely put a link to those on the blog so everyone can check it out and we'll, we'll send them that way so they can look more into what you've done. Really appreciate it. Great. Okay. Great. My pleasure. All right. Thanks so much. Thank bye you bye. very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview. Remember, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check out what we've got going on over there. You can also follow us on Ustream, ustream.tv slash user slash smartpeoplepodcast. Watch us live, hang out, ask some questions, get involved. Man, I got nothing. That was just, that was a good summation. Check out our, you know, sign up for our newsletter. That's, that's the thing I'm really taking in as my baby. So it's on smartpeoplepodcast.com. Just give us your email address. Yeah, hurry up and sign up so I can force Chris to send out the first email. Yeah, I need about twice as many people to sign up. So hey, works for me. Get on that. All right, see you guys next week.